Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. I'm your host, Ian, joined as usual by Emily and Megan. Hello, ladies. Hi. Hello, Ian. How are we this morning? <laughs> We're great. We're doing great. Listen, I have a question for you. Anyone who has read this section will, I hope, welcome this question. How are you feeling about the musical adaptation here in the middle of this piece? There have been moments where Hugo gives us these delicious little tidbits of story. This was perhaps not one of those moments. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess before we dive into the meat of our section for the day, I just want to know if you think this musical was a faithful adaptation. That's a fun question. So far, I think yes. I mean, I think all the things that they, you know, compacted and summarized in various thematic and rousing songs Mm -hmm. worked and were right on the nose thematically and a great condensation of many, 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 (laughs) many pages. You know, I will say I didn't understand why the college kids in the ABC group or whatever were so upset. And Hugo goes into it and will tell us a lot more about that. And I'm looking forward to it. But thematically, each character who has a spotlight or a song devoted to them, so far their song has been a great summary of all the themes associated with them, at least in my opinion. What do you think, Emily? Yeah, I agree. I think that the writers whose names escape me at this moment, I think they latched on to all the right images, Mm -hmm. the ones that Hugo is most concerned with. Mm. And I (laughs) to like answer what was underlying your question, (laughs) and like, it's not like we would be thrilled by a song about why in Megan's words, they were angry. Like we don't want to hear a song about the usurpations of Louis Philippe, even though he might actually be a nice guy. He might. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Man, oh man, what a confusing thing. Well, it, it got me to thinking, and this is something that we've been chewing on at center for lit generally in regard to, here's a little advertising blip, an upcoming book from our director. But I, it's true to say, I think that, literature and philosophy come at the human experience from opposite directions. Philosophy begins with abstract principles and reasons their way, abstract truths, right? Axioms and reasons down toward the human experience. Whereas literature takes as its means the details of people's real lives, relational and spatial and temporal details and reasons upward toward philosophical axioms. And so when we read Tolstoy, which we did a second ago, and now reading Hugo, it's almost like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. And <laughs> he's doing both. He's taking the temporal spatial details of people's real lives and reasoning upward toward philosophy. But he's also starting with philosophical principles and trying to boil those down into something human. And right now, what I'll say, as of this section, I can't tell which of those two approaches in Hugo is going to be the most effective yet. I'm not sure he's come down firmly enough on either side of that line for me to know what kind of novel this is going to be in the end. 
What do you guys think of that? I agree. I think I see what you mean when you say that Hugo is starting like some authors just do start with very firm, like thematic principles in mind, which are like in this case, to some extent, political, economic, etc. And, mm-hmm. and he is writing to elaborate on those themes. Whereas, you know, some authors start with their characters and setting and kind of work out from there. But I think I would kind of sharpen the difference between Tolstoy and Hugo by saying that Tolstoy really was engaging in philosophy, like mm-hmm. abstract principles. Whereas thus far, when Hugo does something that <laughs> where we say, ah, oh, here it is, the Tolstoy section, like <laughs> it's history, mm. not philosophy so much which is very related to literature in that it grabs on to concrete facts. And he's going to have a discussion here that I think is really fruitful about the difference between facts and right. Mm -hmm. But it's, it does something similar in that it starts with the concrete and works its way towards the abstract. Hmm. Well, either way, this section spends a long time. I mean, you guys, goodness gracious, this was a very, it was long. (laughs) took a long time to yeah, read. This took a really long time to read. It was it was not all that many pages. I think the section was 50 or 55 pages or something, but it took two and a half hours to get through them all. I mean, it was just a brutal slog. I also think there are there are ways to read productively and there are ways to sort of, I don't know, sort of saunter your way through the reading. And if you read with a glass of wine, which is what I did, <laughs> That slows you down. <laughs> so it took me forever. And by the time I got to the end of it, I thought, what did I read? And I went what to Schmoop. Happened? If you guys don't know about Schmoop, listeners, it's a, like a better and funnier version of Sparknotes. <laughs> but I needed it this time to figure out what in the world was going on in that history lesson. Yeah. Well, let's dive in then. What is, what's with the history lesson? I mean, I was, I was talking to Emily off the air getting my centuries mixed up like okay which revolution are we talking about here like it's also very french and it's also very impassioned and all the ideas are around liberty legality (laughs) fraternity and all that kind of thing and so where are we situate me in history this is not the french revolution but it is born of it it's born of it it's subsequent to the french revolution the actual one right and it's Bloodless, question mark? Yeah, okay, so quick reminder, 1797, we have the French Revolution that you think of when you think of the, the reign French of terror. Revolution, the reign of terror, yeah. the guillotines, all of that, which he does talk about in this section, so that might be oh, So brace thyself. Um, and he has some, he like gives some actual opinions about it that I thought were interesting. Then obviously after that, that devolves into the Napoleonic Empire and then Napoleon is sent away and we get the restoration of the Bourbons. So like France is basically trying to reinstitute the monarchy Mm -hmm. that they overthrew in the French Revolution. But to do it better, different in a different but better way. Yes. They kind of try to do something like England did in their revolution and say, okay, you can be king, but we have some demands. And Hugo talks about that, mm-hmm. right? He talks about how the people put forward these constitutional demands and like claimed their rights to free speech and like all of that, like association and all that stuff. And the king, from his perspective, who is um, Louis the 18th and then later Charles the 10th, I believe, he basically says he thinks that he is the one giving them these rights. And Hugo says, no, no, like it, it was the people who, who demanded these of him. Right. 
So fast forward a little bit to 1830 and the Bourbons who had like given all of these rights all of a sudden were like, psych, we want them back. We want them back. Like no more freedom in the press, like no more liberty for the individual. And the people obviously were not very pleased with that. But then like in their revolt against that, it was like very tame. I don't I can't like say 100% that there was no bloodshed. I'm not like that educated on the subject, but But it wasn't like, a reign of terror again. Right. It was like basically they didn't kill the reigning monarch Charles X. They just they just sent him into him. exile. It was very calm transition of power. There was some kind of form of election of the new king and that would by, be by a a parliament or a congress, yeah, right? something like that. I don't know how represented the people were in that decision, but there was kind of some some say in that it wasn't just they they chose a family to put on the throne instead and that's where we get louis philippe <laughs> so he was elected um, of the people to be a louis monarch. philippe was to be a sort of yes. monarch okay and he the way that hugo describes him is as this bridging of the gap between the divine right idea of kingship a, a, a representative of the blood as it were and a bourgeois man of the people And then I think this might be helpful to know, like, we're going to end up talking mostly about something that happened in Louis Philippe's reign a couple years in, like the discontent among the friends of the ABC and all of that. Mm -hmm. Like we're in like the 1832 range at this point in the story. But as someone who wasn't educated about this when they watched the musical, (laughs) um, I always took the story as like kind of a ultimate tragedy. Like these people Mm -hmm. sacrificed their lives at the barricades for something that was of no value because eventually the people are discontent that they still have a king, even though he might be something of a enlightened king. But actually in 1848, there is another change in, and the Republic, there is another Republic mm-hmm. that like Louis Philippe is, is ousted and the Republic is reinstituted. So like they are marching their way towards more of the rights of man, something more of a, a democratic Republic and Louis Philippe is a stop along the way. So this discontent that's broiling, like it is actually eventually going to lead to something. Hmm. By what date again? R- repeat the date for 48. me. By 48. 48. Okay. Yeah. But that's like, we. I don't know that we get to see that. Right. No. Yeah. I don't think we do. I mean, my understanding of the story is that it's, that it were, it's over within a couple of years from the present date. So this is like a very early outbreak of discontent which i think is an intentional choice on his part because one of the things he seems to be concerned with is painting the way a society ministers unto itself which is fraught with turmoil and suffering and difficulty but is ultimately inexorable and good right that the idea that progress is something holy and kind of something unavoidable and that it and that it takes as its driving force collective forces that are that aren't down to any one person so in in that way he kind of opposes the notion of monarchy or at least says that it's it's wrong-headed in where it assumes it's getting its power that really where power to move nations comes from is the salt of the earth the average human being in all of his masses right yeah and i think also another like to continue on what you're saying i think thematically it's appropriate for him to focus on this early outbreak because he seems to be concerned about the hope, the seeming hopelessness of suffering 
and the fact that it will eventually be worthwhile in the end, even though right now that it it's seems a crucible to be, for change. Yeah, even though in the moment it may seem pointless. Mm-hmm. So like we compare what's coming at the barricades to Fontaine, right? The seemingly pointless death. I don't know if that helps me be okay about having read this last <laughs> this last part. I mean, it felt a little bit like what was happening is that Hugo was an old man with lots of super duper well-developed opinions about minutia from his own political era. And they may be perfectly true opinions, but until he steps back and starts talking about the ebb and flow of history, rather than the minute differences between different political ideas in his own era, it's less interesting to me. That probably exposes me as a bad reader in some way, shape, or form, but I had a, I had a really hard time paying attention. I did. Well, one thing that happened, I think, is we've been saying this whole time, what does Hugo actually think about all this? And I think he does actually tell us mm. in this section where he stands. Enlighten me. Well, I mean... This is open for discussion, but I took him to be saying that he admires Louis Philippe's principles as a man, but he does not appreciate the monarchy. He So he is democratic. Mm-hmm. He's also highly sympathetic to the socialist cause, but he wants to clarify that he doesn't like he basically wants to make sure to clarify that from communism or maybe. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe the distinction that he's drawing is between goals and means that he agrees with the principle that is at the root of socialism, which is to say that if we can find a way to produce wealth and distribute it in an equitable, not an, not equal, an equal, yeah. but an equitable way that will actually solve the problems of society. He thinks that's true, but he also sees a problem inherent in the acquisition and accumulation of power necessary to redistribute that wealth and what that power actually does to the process, which is Mm -hmm. to say it doesn't carry forward its aim in the end. I don't know if he's gone yet to providing a solution for that problem. What do you guys think? Sorry, that might, that might seem like a little bit of a dead end question. Megan, what were you going to say a second ago? I don't know. I'm just trying to get my head around it because all of this that you're saying is very helpful. It's jogging, (laughs) it's jogging my memory about things that, That, you know, remind me of wine. Um, <laughs> but yes, I, I didn't feel that he was that he was offering his position so much as poking holes in all of the theories. Here's the problem with the monarchy. Here's the problem with socialism. It would be the ideal, except it doesn't work for all of these reasons. And those who have the power to distribute the wealth get corrupted by the wealth and don't distribute it. And, right. you know, mm-hmm. it didn't seem that he was saying here, here is the perfect social order. Instead, he was saying, society's a mess. Look at all the ways that it's messy. At least that's what I took from it. I do think that he really does believe that socialism could work, but that it's inexorably tied to the spiritual condition of a country. Because mm. I, I wonder if he, like, he really has been tying material wealth to spiritual yeah, he has. That's true. well-being this whole time. And I really think the issue is that he, in his opinion, it's a father beyond Banu who needs to be doing this, right? Like he needs to be the one in charge. I don't know. I, yeah, speculation. I like that though. 
maybe I could see that. I could see that. The other thing, though, that's interesting to me is that in this chapter where he taught, where he describes the socialist idea and he walks us through the principle. What chapter is that? For our listeners' sake, let's call it by a name. <laughs> yeah, good point. Uh, it's chapter four. Okay, Cracks in the Foundation. Cracks in the Foundation, it's called. That's exactly right. On page 834 of our edition, he sort of sums up and says, this above and beyond a few stray sects is what socialism said. That's what it sought to realize. This is what it outlined in men's minds. Admirable efforts, sacred attempts. He then, however, immediately, after outlining this principle, calling it admirable and even sacred, he then goes to trotting out its result. And before too long, in the, in the very next chapter, is making gentle fun, at least in my reading, is making gentle fun of the fact that part of the reason this socialist principle won't work is that no one is actually capable, including a king, no one is capable of holding within one's mind and heart all of the necessary exigencies of the scenario in order to make a good decision. Exigencies. Because what's actually happening in a society at any one given time is so vast and composed of so many different people with individual concerns that it can't be managed except by God himself, by the hand of providence. By God and the people, I think. Like, I really do think that there is a political component to this. Emily's and like, that, no, still no. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. I just, I feel like, I don't know. But do you not, do I you don't, not get the humor I'm talking about? I mean, listen to this. Of a private conversation between four men crouching in a ditch at the fork of the road by the Barrière du Tron was caught only this. Everything possible will be done so he'll no longer walk the streets of Paris. Who was he? Obscurely threatening. <laughs> like... <laughs> There's a little sarcasm in that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's gentle and I don't think he intends to be scathing. But there isn't a sense in which the individual mired in his own concerns isn't a giant moving civilization. It's only in the collective mm -hmm. that anything ever gets done. Right. Yes. And that's where I see him being like, I see him seeing the progress of society very much the way that Tolstoy did. Yeah. That, I think like, so too. It really is socialism that he's going for, but at the head of it is God on page eight thirty, before where you read, he, um, he says, God makes his will visible to men in events an obscure text written in a mysterious language. Men make their translations of it instantly, hasty translations, incorrect, full of mistakes, omissions, and misreadings. Very few minds understand the divine language. Right. And then basically he says the wisest do, but at the time that they have actually had time to figure it out, it doesn't matter anymore. Well, and as a result of the hastiness, there are parties that are, that are formed, and each party is only a fraction of the truth. Right. Yes. They're innumerable parties, all of which have names that sound exactly like each other. I mean, he does a whole long joke about it. He lists them all. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon the names all get mixed up and he starts making up names. I mean, it's... So, and it's a, but it's like... Oops, sorry, Megan. Go well, ahead. I was just going to ask you, Emily, do you think that what he means is if we would pause and take the time to really, with our wisest men, discern the will of God, then we could create a party that would work? Like he's hopeful that there's a social regime that we could institute that would solve the problem? I'm not sure. I don't think that he would say that it's the human being who's capable of that. At the beginning of Cracks in the Foundation, it turns mm -hmm. out, I guess, that that's a really important chapter um, on 829. He talks about the different factions and he says, society bleeds under this struggle, but its suffering of today will be its safety hereafter. Mm. And in any event, there is no censure due to those who struggle. One of the two parties is obviously mistaken. 
right is not like the Colossus of Rhodes on two shores at once, one foot in the Republic, one foot in royalty. It is indivisible and all on one side, but those who are mistaken are sincerely mistaken. A blind man is no more guilty, no more a guilty party than a vending is abandoned. So let us impute these terrible collisions only to the fatality of things. Whatever these tempests may be, human responsibility is not involved. So like that's I guess that's why I'm trying to like walk this line because I really do think that he is a committed Republican socialist, but he's also highly sympathetic to the struggle. He's willing to obviously he's willing to see the good on the other side. There are lots of very positive things that he says about Louis Philippe as a monarch, even though he doesn't necessarily agree with him. And that he sees something fruitful in the struggle itself that is ultimately not human, but divine. Well, and I think also he's an author, not just a political theorist. Mm -hmm. And so his topic is always going to be, behold, here is a man. This is what this is what a human being looks like. And I think he admits throughout the course of this section that human beings cannot help but take a side. And I am one. And so I've taken one. Yeah. But he acknowledges that. Our minds are too teeny tiny to know right completely. It's really hard to discern the will of God. On 846, this is at the end of chapter five in this section, he sort of leaves off of the political conversation with what amounts to a sort of defiant and maybe even kind of humble choice in the matter. And he says, push to the limit and beside themselves, terrible half naked, a club in their hands and a roar in their mouths. They demanded this holy, good and gentle thing, progress. They were savages, yes, but the savages of civilization. In contrast with these men, wild we admit, and terrible, but wild and terrible for the good, there are other men, smiling, embroidered, gilded, beribboned, in silk stockings, in white feathers, in yellow gloves, in polished shoes, who, leaning on a velvet table beside a marble mantle, softly insist on the maintenance and preservation of the past." The Middle Ages, divine right, fanaticism, ignorance, slavery, the death penalty and war, glorifying politely and in mild tones the saber, the stake, and the scaffold. As for us, if we were compelled to choose between the barbarians of civilization and the civil advocates of barbarism, we would choose the barbarians. But thank heaven another choice is possible. No sheer fall is necessary, forward no more than backward. Neither despotism nor terrorism. We desire progress on a gentle slope. God provides for this, the smoothing of slopes. Hmm. This is God's whole policy. There's a lot wrapped up in there, but the, the thing that I see first is, look, I have to make a call because I'm just a human being. I can't stand outside the fray. No one can. To do so is to betray oneself. And so here I am making a call. I'll choose this particular kind of inhumanity because I think it aims for something I consider to be good. And having made that choice, I cast it all on the benevolence of God. That that line, if, of, above all the other ones we've read so far, I think, justifies him as an artist and an author rather than a political theorist, in my view. Yeah, that's good. It remind, I think I mentioned this the last time we were talking, but it reminds me of something that I have heard was an idea of Hugo's, which was his rebuff to the romantics that you're so focused on the sublime, but life also requires the grotesque Mm -hmm. and the grotesque is, is also meaningful and provides for, you know, I guess what he would say progress that the, the ugly grotesque things of the world are also in some way necessary to it. 
So the things that we disagree with, the parties we disagree with, if we take it on a literal level, like they, there's a purpose for those other parties' existence. Mm. Well, with that sort of transition from the historical outlines, the first real person he mentions is Angel Ross. So I think we're about to get the reason for the digression, which is let's explain the position of the, what do you call it, Emily, the Abase Club? Abase. Mm -hmm. The Abase Club. The abased ones? I don't know. Anyway, these guys that are going to be the crew on the barricades. And they're clearly a species of the exact issue he's been talking about, right? They're one among many, and they are noble and maybe made more noble by the fact that the task they have undertaken is too big for them, in Hugo's view. Do you guys agree with that assessment? Wait, did you say that they think that the task is more noble? No, I said that they are noble. Maybe not for the reasons that they think they are. Right. They're yes. noble in Hugo's view because they are making a bid for progress and for the good. And he knows that the bid is too large for them. And I don't think that leads him to look down on them or pity them or or criticize them. I think he elevates their passion. No, but it does remind me as a reader of how young they are. They seem idealistic and zealous and inexperienced and like this even handedness that we've seen from him. What made you call him a grandfather, Ian? They lack. They're, they're all extremes and they're on fire about the Edenization of the world, just like he is in his heart but they lack the, the balance of experience or maybe that picture that he gave us of a wise man taking his time to really suss out the whole truth. Enjolras is kind of an angel of fury rather than an even-handed, wise, white-haired old man, you know? And that makes me fundamentally admire him and distrust whatever he's going to do next. And also hmm. the men that he's rely that he's forced to rely on, like Grantaire. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Basically, they they pledge their faithfulness and then can't carry through. Like like Peter in the yeah. garden, right? Like pray and then fall asleep. Like yes. they just can't do it. I know. He that whole conversation between Grantaire and um Angel Ross really hurt my heart because Angel Ross is so mean to Grantaire. And Grantaire really admires him and would do anything for him like a puppy dog. But then in the end, Angel Ross is right to distrust him because he can't stay focused for one second. He's off playing a dice game at the end or playing dominoes or something. Yeah, there's that side to it. And I agree with you. My heart hurt too because I kind of like Grantaire in, <laughs> uh, instinctively. But also, I wonder if. Grantaire has a handle on something Angel Ross doesn't. Hmm. And not, not again, I don't think Hugo is drawing lines between these two men in order to cast down the one and elevate the other. But I think he's looking at two different ways of seeing humanity and interacting with it. Angel Ross sent Grantaire and sent all of his, his minions to different quarters of the city to, to specifically, he would probably say, inspire and impassion and call to action. But he said, to be frank, on the to manipulate, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. to manipulate people in different quarters of the city to take up arms. That is his goal. Grantaire, on the other hand, looks around and goes, I mean, okay, sure. I'll do that because I love you. And I think you're a good dude. There's something authentic in the way Grantaire behaves and something idealistic in the way that Andras behaves. I think there's good things about both of those, but I don't know. I lean Grand Terra a little bit. What do you guys think? 
I mean, definitely. I think Grantaire is more of a human being than Andral Ross. I just think that what he promises Andral Ross is not his best. I think that mm. when he promises Andral Ross all that he wants him to, I he doesn't sound like himself. He sounds much more like himself when he's playing dominoes, you know? <laughs> and I, yeah. I like him better than Andral Ross, 100%. But he's going to get sucked under to whatever Andral Ross is doing because he's got this ideal of the man that I think is... I don't know. This section made me afraid of Angel Ross. Like he's a, I don't know. He's an angel of fury, and all of these yeah. adoring fans are going to get sucked under whatever his his glimpse of the luminous future is. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really well put. It also made me pity Angel Ross. Yeah. Because we've just been given a decades long understanding of France's history. And we now are equipped to know that Anzaras is in no way unique. Mm-hmm. He's not alone in thinking all these things. Right. He's not alone in thinking all of these things. He is not the beleaguered hero he assumes himself to be. He is, uh, first of all, Hugo is careful to say, a dignified human soul worthy of respect and honor. Of all course. of that is true. I don't think he's belittling the man, but he is looking at him and saying, you are a symptom of the problem. Mm-hmm. You are a piece in a much, much larger game. And the game can't go forward, perhaps without people that believe as Anzaras does that they are essential to the scope of history. But that doesn't change the fact that he's going to die alone with his friends on the barricade Mm -hmm. and won't see any of the changes that he thinks sending out his buddies, his teenage buddies into the different corners of the city to to promote an uprising are going to, are going to do. So I don't know. It's tragic. Yeah. I'm looking at that section on page 849 in our book. Um, Anzaras is like, like feeling the gravity of events and considering the future that he dreams of. And he says, a phenomenon that brings on collapses and rebirths. Anjaras caught glimpses of a luminous uprising under the dark skirts of the future. Who knows? Perhaps the moment was approaching. The people seizing their rights again. What a glorious spectacle. The revolution majestically resuming possession of France and saying to the world, tomorrow, Anjaras was pleased. Mm-hmm. And I just think there's such a healthy dose of you hear his his young, zealous spirit. And also there's a portentous feeling like this is actually what's going to happen. We've had our history lesson and we know that there's a cycle going on here and that it, if the cycle continues to repeat as history is wont to do, Anjaras is right about all of this. Maybe not with such a triumphant finality, but we are due for a revolution next and there is going to be some kind of rebirth but the collapse has to come first. So a phenomenon that brings on collapses and rebirths, Andras is going to be part of a collapse in a lot of ways. And so there's a, I don't know, a feeling of heaviness. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little tragic. Mm-hmm. It's a little tragic. Did anyone else get the, the call out to the musical in this one? Grantaire is ready to go do what Andras has asked. And he dresses up in a Robespierre waistcoat and steps out. And he just looks at Andras and winks and says, red. And then leaves the scene. <laughs> All I could think of was red, red? the blood of angry men. <laughs> I thought, 100%. oh man, it's a bit on the nose, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Also, like, true to form, Angelos is like, I can't use Marius. He's out, like, mooning, mooning over some over girl. Right. Some- <laughs> I feel my heart on fire. <laughs> I mean, well, there's, yeah, it's another, it's another way in which the musical is well written though, because that song, um, Marius musing it's on deep. his lady love and Angel Ross musing on the revolution happened in the same song. 
And I think there is absolutely a relationship between those things. We look at Marius and we say, dude, you still literally do not know this woman's <laughs> name. Come now. You've stopped working. You're you're slowly beginning to starve, physically starve. And you're just letting it happen. My dude, like well, th- and- there's there's something of youth in this situation. And I think we're supposed to look at him and Anjaras side by side and say, these guys are doing the same thing. Do you, isn't there a part where he kind of compares love to to war? Like that there's a way in which both of these figures are idealizing something mm-hmm. and the Ooh, force yeah. of its reality maybe is going to come crashing in upon them. But they're I think that they're related, the the love and the war. Yeah, I agree. Something Which, to do with suffering. I don't know. If we circle back to Ian's initial question, I think it's a huge plug for the musical because thematically that song is juxtaposing those two things, red and black, the color of love, the color of death, or both colors for both things. You know, it's very, mm-hmm. very symbolic. Way to go, <laughs> producers of the musical. Nice, nice job, guys. There you go. So <laughs> only my remember your names. question... <laughs> Are they? I just have to wonder. Like, do you guys think they are literally playing dominoes, like a bunch of like nursing home ladies? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I that I like say that facetiously. I also myself enjoy a good game of dominoes. <laughs> but, like, they, they probably are didn't vicious. call it. They probably didn't call it Mexican train. This is like literally playing dominoes with my grandmother who is almost this vicious right (laughs) if they are playing dominoes i don't recognize the point system (laughs) that they are you're done for two six three ace it's my turn what is happening (laughs) you guys don't play dominoes right you gotta match the numbers (laughs) ace ace now it's your turn (laughs) fdr jfk (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) From Hugo's, what I will call his eternal condescension. He, he wants to talk about history and he wants to talk about all these political movements. And he deigns to give us a little human connection at the end of that meditation yeah. by reminding us that these are the very movements in which Anjoras and Grantaire and the rest are going to participate. Okay. We then get a blessed reprieve <laughs> by getting some more Marius and some more Eponine and some more character driven plot for a second. What do you guys make of this last section? There's some light on the horizon for Marius, right? He has now learned where Cosette lives. Well, yes. Although the first part of this section, he just finds out that there's a field called the Field of the Lark. And he spends some months walking around because he's discovered that her name is not Ursula, but that her nickname is the Lark. So he finds a place with that name and figures he will eventually learn her name there. So there's some more ridiculousness. (laughs) <laughs> Isn't there also a river that runs through it called like the river of the goblins or something like that, which is very close to goblins, which is what Eponine is compared to in this section? Yes, it's just very true. He, he's getting himself embroiled in something of a complicated affair here. <laughs> he's, I mean, he's completely unaware of it, though. He's totally unaware. Well, I also thought in this section it was beautiful. Eponine's character comes into focus a little bit more. She gets released from prison. She's used a little bit more by the crooks and villains that her father is is caught up with because she's she knows no other way. But she has a mission from Marius that she was unable to complete for two weeks because she was in prison. And she hasn't forgotten him or the mission. So she finds Monsieur Mabouf, I think is how you say his name, mm-hmm. and does him a good deed, a good turn, 
so that she can get Marius's location from him. I thought that whole scene was really beautiful, though, because she's described, it's the first time she's described not as repellent. She's not mm. this horrible creature from the underworld. She's actually right. described as some kind of heavenly sprite being offered to him in his moment of need. And she serves him openly and and actually waters plants and brings things to life. And all of the imagery that we've seen of rain being life-giving and plants being where hope is found in the world. And everyone who's tending a garden is supposed to be a good character. And here mm-hmm. Eponine is doing all of those things, which I think was important to see before she interacts with Marius again. It gave us a glimpse into the beauty in her heart before we see her in a new way as she's interacting with Marius. She's got puppy love mm-hmm. for him for sure. So I think it would have been easy when she's described as newly beautiful when she shows up to Marius again. It would have been easy to just say, oh, she's in love now. But actually, I think we're supposed to see that there's beauty in her personality and in her character mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we we didn't get to see before. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I thought it was significant character development for her. I agree. I think her self-concept is complicated, though. She's Father Mabuff sees her as a sprite, but also he's been reading about goblins. And then he yeah. says, well, maybe maybe that was a goblin. It sounds a lot like what I've been reading. And right. He says, God bless you. You are an angel since you care for flowers. No, she answered. I'm the devil, but that's all the same to me. So like she kind of sits on that line between angel and devil, sprite and goblin. I wonder what it is that pushes pushes someone in dire straits to either side of that line. I mean, he's he's danced up to the to the edge of making claims about that before. He's talked about the evil in the human heart and how it's connected to poverty and lack of education and all of that. But in, I Epitine, guess. in Eponine's case, I wonder. Go ahead, Megan. At least, I mean, this is what I see Hugo saying so far. She is different from her father in one really strong way. And it's that when she interacts with a new person, she doesn't just see them as what they can give to her, but she sees them as an opportunity of someone to serve. And she does it not just to Marius because she has puppy love for him, but to everyone else that we've seen her interact with. She serves her father. She does that willingly. She serves the rest of the crooks who ask her for favors. Absolutely. She helps Marius with whatever he needs. She shows up to Mabuf and says, I can carry that water for you. She's giving and generous and sees other people as fellow sufferers rather than, I don't know, opportunities to get her needs met. Hmm. That's true, I think. Yeah, I well, like I, that. Towards Marius, she seems to be making the ultimate sacrifice in recognizing that it's the lark mm-hmm. that he's in love with, even though she loves him. And yet she still leads him to her. Yeah, I don't know. I think she's fundamentally empathetic that when she she reacts to a person, her first response is, I understand this about you. At mm-hmm. least w- we see that most with Marius, but her first right. instinct is to understand and to put him in context and then serve him. And I think that's beautiful. On page 866, when she walks in on Marius, it says, strangely, she had become more impoverished and more beautiful. Two further steps that seemed impossible. She had accomplished a double progress toward the light and toward distress. So she is also a character who was proclaimed ugly, who mm-hmm. has been made beautiful. And I believe the difference is the love that she feels. Mm. Or or in this case, he actually compares it specifically to her... To suffering, her, actually. Her descent. Yeah. yeah. The descent is making her, her more beautiful. Mm-hmm. 
Which is why, yeah, that's why I say I think the heart of what makes her beautiful is empathy. Because the more you have suffered or experienced sorrow, the more opportunity there is for you to empathize with people that you interact with. And she has, she's, I don't know, that gift of hers is stronger out of prison than it was even before. Mm -hmm. So it might not be love that makes her so beautiful this time. It might be suffering. Mary is just being clueless. (laughs) Mary is just... What an idiot. A little hard for me to read. <laughs> what a what a mooning idiot that guy is. <laughs> I couldn't remember. You guys help me remember this. When she says, "You promised me something. I'll give you the address. Mm-hmm. I'll sacrifice all of my hopes and dreams and do this for you. I know that you don't notice me this way, but you promised me something. What did he promise her? He promised her whatever she wants if she can find Cosette's house. Mm-hmm. Good grief. Okay. And he just immediately assumes that's money. Which, of course, is a brutal assumption. Yeah. Awful. Of course, I mean, it seems pretty clearly telegraphed that what she thinks she's going to get is him. Or, you know, like, she probably was like a kiss or like, you know, she was going to ask for something in return. Which is a little poignant because it reminds you how young she is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is heartbreaking. Goodness. Oh, man. And then it's extra heartbreaking when she says, don't walk with me because it, it wouldn't do for a fine young man like you to be seen with a woman like me. And she's a child saying this, but there's deep significance in calling herself that. Right. Yeah, she's underage still, we're told, which is one of the reasons they can't keep her in prison. Mm-hmm. When that's her self-concept as the devil, right? Yeah. She even... A fallen even, woman, yeah. Yeah. In spite of her love for Marius, she has no delusions about her fitness for that relationship well you guys thank you for helping me through the historical weeds <laughs> same emily just I, carried us on her shoulders yeah. kind of like valjean i feel like emily, emily's the valjean great. of this section <laughs> speaking of valjean like i really want some more valjean like i was kind of attached to him as a principal character and i really want to read about him some more i love that hugo is still like insistently calling him leblanc or whatever also, <laughs> yeah <laughs> There was a section where Javert was like, oh man, if only I'd gotten the prisoner and made the prisoner a prisoner and still doesn't say it's Valjean. I don't know that he knows. I'm confused. Why don't we just acknowledge what we know here? I mean, maybe Hugo has a really low opinion of us as readers. (laughs) He thinks we're snowed and it's going to be a shock when the lark is revealed to be Cosette. I don't think so. He knows we know. I think that he's just carrying this thematic principle rather far. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so last thing before I let you guys go off and and have a day and let you listeners go go keep reading. There was a passage in this section describing Louis Philippe <laughs> where he launches into a description and then forgets that the period is one of the things we have in language. Oh, yeah. And uses only semicolons for a full two pages of text. Oh my gosh. One sentence. I did not notice this. Technically Wait, and where? grammatically, it's one Show sentence. Show us where this is. Here, I'll look, I'll, I'll look it up for you. I mean, that resonates with to me. my experience of reading it, <laughs> but I thought that was on me, so I'd be glad to know. Oh, it was just, it's, it's incredible. I've never seen anything like it. Louis-Philippe. Okay, so it's from page 822, about halfway down the page. Okay. The sentence that precedes it is, Louis-Philippe was an exceptional man. Oh yeah, right. Oh, and yes, I did. The rest of this. that page, the whole page following and half of the next page <laughs> is all a single <laughs> sentence. Oh, my gosh. Can you believe that? I mean, that's that's it's amazing. Astonishing. I mean, 
it's obviously English and not the French. So, but I mean, one feels like as a translator, you don't make that decision casually. So it must reflect something in the real text. Well, what is that literary (laughs) device that is like a piling up of, of descriptors? It's, I think it's called a conjuries. Yeah. It seems Mm -hmm. like this is a conjuries where usually the purpose of that is to almost like blowing up a balloon, like expand, expand, expand your image of a person. This is not a conjuries. This is a menagerie of a conjuries. (laughs) This is a couple conjuries put together. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We love you. We love you, man. And you love Louis Philippe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, thank you guys for your insights. Thank you listeners for joining us. It has been a wonderful trip. And we will see you again for yet another episode of How to Eat an Elephant. In the meantime, my friends, bon appetit. Bon appetit. appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.